0: Dr. John Littlewolf grew up in the city of Cass Lake on the Leech Lake Indian Reservation. He is Anishinaabe, an enrolled member of the Boy's Fort Band of Chippewa. He began his law enforcement career with the White Earth Tribal Police in 2009 as a patrol officer and later the Leech Lake Tribal Police in 2011. During his career, his duties have included patrol officer, domestic violence and sexual assault investigator, and criminal investigator. He is currently a conservation officer with the Shakopee and Sioux community. John's education includes a bachelor's in criminal justice from Bemidji State University, a master's in public safety executive leadership from St. Cloud State University, a master's in leadership and change from Antioch University, and a PhD in leadership and change from Antioch University. He focused on law enforcement culture and trauma during his doctoral studies, and his dissertation, Police Officer Trauma in Rural Minnesota, a Narrative Study, was published in January of 2020. John has always been an advocate for his indigenous community. Currently, he is the Minnesota Indian Affairs Representative on the Minnesota Violent Crimes Coordinating Council and is also their Community Engagement and Prevention Committee Chair. He also serves as a board member for the American Indian Family Center in St. Paul. John is also a published author of a book of brilliant poetry and a self-described activist. Get excited for my conversation with Dr. John (music) Littlewolf. Lindsay Lyons and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality and sustain an inclusive anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Dr. John Littlewolf, welcome to the podcast. I just read through your professional intro, but is there anything you'd like to add to introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Sure. John Littlewolf is my English name. Um, My indigenous name is Nij Anamaki. I'm Anishinaabe, which is our people's name for ourselves, otherwise known as Ojibwe here in Minnesota. The meaning of my name means second thunderbird in English. Just throw that in there. I'm here in Minnesota and happy to be joining you today.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. As we think about this idea that I think we both connect with, we are, we're both in the same program of leadership and change together. We're both passionate about poetry and justice. Uh, this idea, I think, really encapsulates all of that for me. Dr. Bettina Love talks about it. It's called Freedom Dreaming, Dreams Grounded in the Critique of Injustice. And so I'm really curious to know, as you think about dreams grounded in the critique of injustice, what is your freedom dream for either education, your life, the world's in general?
1: I've thought a lot about this question uh, the last couple of days. The thing that comes to mind is this, my indigenous um, identity and a dream grounded in an injustice is living and existing today because we have to first live as indigenous people first that's, that's a given and that's a celebration in itself, given historical genocide, given um, the unique assault that the United States government did in its own laws and its own policies against my people. And so the celebration today looks different than it did say hundred years ago. Today it's, it's graduation season right now, we're in May, and I get to see these indigenous celebrations on my, on my Facebook feed. I get to see the next generation coming up and I get to see the the walk for them being just a little more easier, the same way that my parents set it up for me, just a little bit easier. And I had privileges that they didn't. It's mind-boggling. I, we think of this historical genocide as being multiple generations ago. No, it was my grandparents' time away. You know, where my parents lived through this stuff, and it's it is a victory in itself to to just be alive first, but then more so to even celebrate the accomplishments such as graduation, such as getting a job, such as all these life things that happen.
0: As we talk about poetry, and we're going to talk about poetry a lot in this episode, how do you see that fitting into this freedom dream, this celebration?
1: For me, poetry is, it was always there. It was this underlying river, if you will. It was always there in my experiences and it would be delayed. So I would go through something, whether it be loss or an experience and days later what i believe was my consciousness or my spirit was putting it together and days later out would come something i never expected and it was always some of them i look at i'm like oh my god did i write that or that i couldn't write that again if i had to that sort of mentality and it's a surprise and it's a gift and i've come to value it as a gift poetry i I, It'll always be there. It predates my career. It predates everything else. And yeah, I hope to to leave a little behind or something, you know?
0: I love that. It makes me think about, I can't remember the author now, but how the ideas of everything we write are actually in the world. They're just in there. And we just have to like reach out and grab them and let them flow through us. And I've always thought that was profound because I've done the same thing where I look back and, oh, I wrote that? And so that's so powerful. I think, especially for children, right? When we think about children in educational spaces who maybe don't love writing because what writing has been to them historically in traditional school is a five paragraph essay following this formula and using these sentence starters. And it totally doesn't connect with them as people or to justice or celebration or any of the things we value. So I appreciate that you're naming that there can be joy and celebration.
1: Absolutely. I totally agree.
0: I talk a lot about mindset being important to transformational work and education. So what mindset shifts do you think are important to being able to achieve the dream that you describe?
1: It's emotion in its pure form. I mean, it's, it's encapsulated. It's the best thing that we have to a container for this emotion and transmitting that across generations is, (laughs) this is the amazing part that I've always loved. And so if we can transmit this emotion, then we can transmit other things. We can transmit this fire. Take, for example, one of my favorite poet activists, John Trudell. When you read his work and his activism and the time that he was in, it just, it lights something inside of you. And I wish I had been exposed to him younger. I wish I had found his work when I was younger because it gave so much, it just lined up perfectly with what I was feeling at the time, but I couldn't put words to it. And so I see it as a catalyst for connecting inward with myself and then connecting outward. So yeah, it's pretty amazing.
0: That is so incredibly well said. And it makes me actually think about, I've, I'm reading our mutual professor, John Morgan's book now, Deep Learning. And he talks about a deep learning experience being emotional. And Dr. Sheree Bridges-Patrick, who we both went to school with, talks about uh, generative mobilizing discourse being connected to emotion. And so this idea of emotion as this powerful force for learning and growing and connecting, I love that idea of connecting inward and, and outward externally. I think this is a huge mindset shift. If we can think about learning in that way, as opposed to which worksheets am I printing out for my students today? It is transformative when we think about it this way.
1: Absolutely. I didn't know that that uh, you know writing in, in school and things like that. Take away the rules. And I could write without those rules. I've always been able to write, you know, that's been a strong point, but nobody told me that you could take away the rules. You could you could just write what you feel and you don't have to write in a box. I didn't discover that until I was 26. And I I wish I had discovered it sooner. I wish there would have been a teacher or a mentor or something along the way. That, I'm from a small town, and there was not any artistic programs. There wasn't any. We had band and sports. That was about it. As for creative writing, no, that was never tapped, and so it sat empty, unused. Um, it was there. It was just, yeah, manifesting in some unhealthy ways sometimes. So. I'm glad that I found it, and today I'm a staunch advocate with people that you know. I talk to. You can just write. <laughs> you don't have to write in this box and and be in prose or be in this or be in this this stanza form. Just just write, and it comes. So that's been my style, and that's exactly how my poetry comes. It's just a a flash, uh, <laughs> a regurgitation of emotion, a a quick explosion, and then there it is.
0: I love the idea of taking away the rules because even when we teach poetry as a unit in ELA or something, it's often very much like, here are the ways you can be a poet. You can write a limerick. You can write, you know, no, like just take those rules away and let the emotional pieces flow through. You could always clean it up after, adjust some words or whatever. If we don't start there with that emotion, that thing that needs to come through us and come out onto paper. We're not really teaching poetry. We think we're teaching poetry, but we're really teaching rules for people to fit in boxes. And poetry is activism and poetry for justice. It's getting out of those boxes.
1: Absolutely. 100% uh, poetry and activism. I, I should say for your audience, I am an activist. I stay active in a lot of causes and I, I find voice in that and I find meaning in that. It goes with my identity and yeah, it's just another lens to see the world with and, and translate the world with. And again, activism, is there, is there anything, you know, indigenous causes are inherently identity driven, you know, it's not a, it's not a, I was slighted because of something I own or some property I, or some third party thing. It's like, no, this hits to the core of who I am. And so you, yeah, you translate that into emotion and into words and there's, there's a message.
0: I appreciate you naming that too, because I think sometimes there's resistance from teachers or from leaders who are like, yeah, I'm interested in justice, but I'm not sure that I wanted to call this an activist curriculum, which I am a huge fan of, right? Activist projects, but that's really what it is. And I love that you named that. It's, it's not separate from identity. It's core and central to identity. It is not politics. We've politicized it, but it's not politics. And so the idea of being fearful of parents or family members who are going to come in and say, are you brainwashing my child? And things like that. I think that is the mindset shift, recognizing that is identity-based. Activism is about identity and identities have been politicized, but they are not inherently political is really necessary to be able to teach like a poetry activism unit. That's absolutely essential. So thank you for that framework. I think people need to hear that. And as we think about people who are really excited to take some brave action here, what would you recommend in terms of taking action that can enable students to be able to write and share their poetry in a way that promotes justice?
1: Absolutely. Uh, just like I touched on my my own journey was, I missed out on a lot of years, and and you know it it is what it is right now, and I've accepted that. But my job right now is exactly what I talked about to make it a little easier for the next generation. And to tap into you know these younger minds and just right. I mean that's that's when I got to 26 years old and I took a college writing course. And I'm like, it was like intro 101, it was that's when it started, this intro 101 college writing class in undergrad. And I'm like, oh wow, okay. Rewind to 14-year-old John to 16-year-old John and how I started to act out. And I was acting out of emotion, pure emotion, certain things going on in my life. And it was just, you know, what if that could have been harnessed a different way? What if I would have put voice to that, you know, almost like a recording? What if I would have saved that? And there would be so much power and shareable message there, shareable experience there, relevant experience for today's 14-year-old indigenous man who's feeling Exactly how I was feeling, or sixteen-year-old, or you know, it just went on from there. And so I keep writing, of course, as I go through my years. But uh, now it's almost become a, as I age and mature, it's become a responsibility to to add emphasis to this that there's actual meaning there that that um, it doesn't just have to be calculus and arithmetic and all that stuff that I sucked at. This is there. And this was my best voice. I was never a great public speaker. I would stutter. I would sweat. But when he asked me to write something out, now there's my best voice. I can do that unfiltered and with the truth, with the absolute truth.
0: It makes me think of how we respond to children who are in our classrooms or in our schools that end up in detention, end up with suspension to just imagine in that moment, if instead of yelling at a child or sending a child to the office, it was, can you just write down for me what you're feeling? It could be a written recording. It could be an oral recording. Each kid is going to have their own you know, way of doing that, but that's a transformative moment to be able to say, we could go down this path or we could go down this path. What would it look like for teachers to just give students an option to sit in a quiet place in the room and just write? What you said about sharing with someone else decades later, what if you share that with the student in the grade below you or the class next door, someone else in that moment who needs to hear that they are not alone because they connect with your poem. And maybe that looks like having a a poetry share day every month or something where everyone gets to be able to share that wants to. There's so many classroom practices that I see coming out of what you just shared would have been helpful for you.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. To get out of a textbook and to get into something like that. I would love that. I mean, I would have. Okay, I'm thinking about it now. Oh, my God. I would have thrived in that in that kind of environment. Instead, I barely graduated high school. I literally barely graduated high school. And I have a doctor today, if that tells you anything. I was disconnected. And yeah, I, I textbooks and uh, boards and lecture that was not reaching me.
0: And you've published an entire book of original poetry as well. So talk about being a writer, like a published author, very few people get to say that each ELA teacher listening right now is like, yeah, if my students published a book of original poetry, you know, or original anything, I would be ecstatic as a teacher. And what's possible is there are so many youth, especially with platforms like social media that people can also publish poetry today. They don't have to wait till, till they're older if they're given these publishing opportunities where a real audience can, can see their work. And I think it, it starts with models. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to read one of your poems for us today to inspire that teacher who's thinking about doing a poetry unit and what, what does that look like? Or maybe even a child who's listening who would like to see what poetry could look like.
1: I will should probably have prefaced that um, there is a bleepable word in here. So you might want to bleep, add one of those beep things, but it gets to the emotion of what's tapped in here. And as a teenager, my words probably, my writings would have had lots of bleeps, and that would have been raw and real. Um, But instead, it was uh, contained and colonialized. So... Okay, I have not shared this one, really, so here we go. On a clear night, the clouds sidestep my town, whispering, watching me. Aisle to aisle, eyes that cut into my pockets and remember what they look like when I walked in. Blue-eyed side-eye, all that's left is Minnesota unsaid. Did I come here with those shoes and that shirt, smiling and clothes from the finest rummage sales? because I darkened in the sun like my father and his father before him, because my nose is too sharp in profile, high features that plateau akin to breaking water and rising ground. My skin is rain-soaked, rutted by words heavily stained from them not minding their goddamn business. Those summers I was about to fly, forgetting my station, arms held out until winter. Dreams at bay, these brown bodies that obey, Watered from their runoff, our branches were late. Their blocking canopy rising higher and higher. Blatant cruelty, these colonial brazen games. How my heart raced, how my hands did tremble early from the days of stealing rhubarb to yesterday, facing the hateful masses. Born of this life where every space is borrowed, my blame, my shame, my basic needs. That place where we garnered stories Is what makes them afraid, contrary to the blindness they crave to keep us childlike iconic forgotten and always away. For sale on the wall at the company store my family name hangs other things float nearby in the dirty river my father's knee my grandfather's back maybe we should give medals for crazy for unmet needs overpaid dues or a charge card for intergenerational debts. We'll keep them next to the scented candle that smells of sawdust, theft, and that lingering smell of sweat. Back to those glaring clouds, fake-ass postcard of Minnesota flowers. No, I'm not from Bemidji or Walker. Fuck you. I'm from Cass Lake. The space unseen between your store, your cabin, and your bar. You know those two minutes passing trees to faces before you make that turn ignorantly indifferent? Can you see my moonlit middle finger reflected on the lake, my gift from the bastard side of the moon? And long before I must give them back to the pines, my borrowed skin, this inherent inheritance, I will push your paper sky away and touch the cattails, the reeds, the occupied nape the loving space of the lake you own, that which was my home. If only for one day, for the lifelong resident, resilient. For we fight in all ways, always fighting, fighting always. If you know what I mean, then you know what I mean. And if you do know what I mean, then say it again. To you, my beautiful Sistrin Ikwe Spectrum, my son celebrated Ogichida, brethren.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that.
1: I, sorry, I got choked up. There was a word there and I tripped over it and it just, it was a catch in my throat. And I'm like, that's the emotion that I wrote it with. Mm -hmm. And even as the writer in third paragraph, I'm like, yeah, there it is. So.
0: That is so powerful to, to hear your reflection of that That right there is what poetry is all about to me and what it can be all about to students. That's the thing, right? When we read that, where does your voice catch? Where does it catch as an author? Where does it catch as a reader who's just reading a poem out loud? Being able to tap into that, I think is the power because if we don't tap into that and we just read it in this academic way and we're just analyzing for rhyme scheme or something, we, we miss so much. So I love that you- just gave us that insight into what was going on with you as, as you were reading. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Um, for your listeners, uh, the last words, my beautiful sister in Ikwe spectrum. Ikwe is woman in Ojibwe. My son celebrated Ogechida, brethren. Ogechida is warrior. So to my sister in Ikwe woman spectrum, we believe gender's on a spectrum and Ogechida, the, the warriors takes many forms.
0: That piece, as well as the whole poem, there's so much linked to justice. And I so appreciate that your activism is always intersectional. All of the pieces of identity. We're talking about gender on a spectrum. We're talking about race. We're talking about nation. We're talking about language. We all hold so many identities. Our activism cannot exclude one identity at the expense of the other. I think of the women's suffrage movement. We want the right to vote, but not if you're not white that's not the activism I want to be affiliated with. We're talking about this intersectional justice. And I love that you bring all of those pieces in there, just even in that one poem. It's so beautiful. It's such a great representation of what activism can be. Thank you for sharing it. Thanks for letting me share. Do you mind if I ask you a few analysis questions? Absolutely. What inspired you to write the poem? Was it a particular event, a particular emotion? Where do you think it came from, if you're able to pinpoint where it came from?
1: I think that one came out last year. Last year was a turbulent year, as we all know, especially here in Minnesota. Went to a lot of marches, went to a lot of actions, and we're still, we're still going forward. Line three is, is big here in Minnesota, and if you don't know, that's a pipeline that's going through northern Minnesota right now it's being built and uh, there's a lot of indigenous people standing up and a lot of allies that are standing up to say this is not the best idea Um, these things leak these things historically it's not if it'll leak it's when it'll leak and we have evidence of that in northern Minnesota from the 90s when the original line three leaked (laughs) thousands of gallons and so that was on my mind last year when this came out and this one, and it came out quick and the imagery in there was about my own experience. My, what I believe my grandparents experienced the direct pillaging of the land through acts of Congress that allowed the literal replacement of indigenous people on their own land. The poem itself, yeah, it, it was powerful. It came out fast. Well, even now I'm looking at it in different lenses and it changes. I mean, it, it, that's the beauty of it. it. It changes, and I'm like, "Wow, this is this is relevant to things I have coming up. This is relevant to my to my life and what I want to instill in my you know child someday." I mean, this is this is living. So, yeah.
0: I think that's the power of an amazing poem, right? It, it's living. It, it can tap into something that's happening today, ten years ago, hundred years ago, and so I think that's so powerful that you share that reflection. I'm also curious to know what are your favorite lines of the poem?
1: Where I tripped over, where, where I was, (laughs) where the emotion was the rawest was when it was uh, the standing up because throughout the poem and there's, um, there's an obedience, there's a, there's a surrender, there's a, a beaten people and that's in there. At the end of the poem is where the the power is taken back. No, absolutely not. I'm going to flick you off through the moon and I'm going to say, no, I'm from here, this place you ignore, this place that you advertise as this beautiful resort area with lakes and everything. No, this is indigenous land and there's abject poverty here. There's issues that are overlooked here. It's not your resort, your backyard getaway this is our home that great lake home that you have there that was our land and so there's power in there and that's the resiliency and the uh yeah exactly what i got to at the start of the podcast that that we are still here and we're often overlooked but we are resilient and we're beautiful and here we are
0: i'm thinking about all of the students or just people generally that are hearing this or will hear this poem in the future. And I'm wondering what your hopes are in terms of the impact of the poem.
1: I honestly hope it, uh, I hope it fires someone up. I hope it makes someone say, this is, this is what I'm feeling and I can align with this. And I'm going to own my own identity. I'm not going to be the shame-based belief system. And for so long, I I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but The shame-based upbringing that happens to a lot of people of color, a lot of, especially indigenous people with the colonialism, with the forced Christianity and this this mindset that that is wrong, your indigenous identity is wrong. I mean, that's the definition of shame. And so to own that identity, this is a lifelong journey for me. And I I sadly didn't start until I was in my 20s. Again, that came along with the poetry and my own journey. But... Yeah, to, to tap into that, to, to have that poem there. I hope somebody reads it someday and is like, yeah, absolutely. I can identify with that. That's what I'm feeling. And maybe I can read some more about this guy's journey.
0: When I think about teaching poetry or enabling students to create their own poetry, the human is often divorced from that. It's often, let me teach the stanzas, let me teach all the things. I just appreciate that you've just given us insight into the humanity that comes with poetry that is integral to good poetry. And I hope that helps people envision themselves as poets and as people who are capable of getting these brilliant ideas that we all have on paper in a way that helps improve the lives of someone else or at least resonate with someone else and see, I'm not alone in this. I have a connection to someone.
1: Yeah, there's so many things that get in the way. masculinity god you you were a man that was it i mean you can imagine small town minnesota that's what you did you you worked you didn't complain you were allowed to show the emotion anger other than that and no fault to my father i mean that was just how it was and so to do a practice in poetry an extreme practice in vulnerability that's contrary to that masculine identity i hope it's a common practice for the next generation.
0: Absolutely. Just poetry is practice that is embodied activism. It's, it's so profound. Thank you. And as we think about you know, wrapping up the episode, what is one thing you would encourage someone listening to do when they end the episode? I often think of this as like, how do we live in alignment with the values of justice, the values of equity? How do we show up as, as the best version of ourselves that embodies those things?
1: If there's other people out there that, you know, haven't found an author that speaks to them, you know, definitely find one that lines up with their values. For me, it's John Trudell. I cannot get enough of his work and his his life and his words. Um, but there's new incarnations of that. There's new, you know, branches as 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 we move forward. Um, and so find an author that speaks to you. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's poetry. Maybe it's maybe it's story. Maybe it's something. But there's there's words out there. There's people that have helped pave the way before
0: us. That's so encouraging too for a student or a teacher who has a student that they think they're not a fan of reading. And my opinion is always like, you just haven't found the thing you love to read yet. Everyone is a reader. Everyone loves hearing words and, and can connect with their beauty and their possibility. It's totally about finding the person that resonates. And I love that suggestion. And actually, I just recently found, I will link to this in the show notes, the Social Justice Poetry Database. And look at some different poems that connect. So if you are thinking about creating a unit or putting on a poetry show or something, this could be some really cool inspiration in there too. Cool. You are always learning and growing and passionate about being a lifelong learner. What is something that you're learning about lately? Or what is something that you've been working on to help other people learn?
1: Being exactly what you said, someone that speaks to you, I wanted to put a plug in for this book right now, as we have always done, indigenous freedom through radical resistance. This author, Leanne Betta Smoke Simpson, her words are, I, I, I can't get enough of it. I spoke to a tribal college class recently and I suggested this book. I actually sent the professor a copy of the book and I'm just like, please read this because I wish I had read this. Some, you know, it's new, it's actually a new book, but I'm like, I wish this had been around five years ago and I wish I would have found it then.
0: I love that. And I can link to that in the show notes too. So people can just click on it and get a copy. That's on my to read list now. Thank you. You are all over social media. You're always sharing, you know, your activism, but also just you as a human being. And I love following all of your journeys. So where can listeners learn more about you, connect with you in those online spaces?
1: Uh, I guess LinkedIn is if anyone wants professional connection, I'm always there. My social media—I'm just a goofball, and I, <laughs> it's just how I live. And I'm a pretty outgoing kind of guy there. Um, but yeah, uh, LinkedIn—if anyone ever wants any more information—yeah, um, happy to talk to anybody.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much. And I will say, every person that I know who knows you is just so excited to be in your presence. Just feeling heartwarming as they experience time with you and connect with you. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was so fun chatting with you. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show. So leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self.